have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner My guest today on Spirit in Action is Marlene Strum. She is many things. She is a writer, a speaker, a caregiver, healer, storyteller, and a singer. And she comes with us today to share some of the stories of her growth and the stories that she shares with others as they grow forward to embrace the full meaning of their lives. Good morning, Marlene. Good morning, Mark. I'm so happy to be here with you. Marlene, you've got quite a story. I guess one of the things I forgot to mention that you also are, or were, along the way, is a farmer and a photographer. There's an awful lot going on in your life. Did you grow up on a farm? In the broad sense, I did not grow up on a farm. When I married, my husband came from a farming family. And then after that, when his parents retired, my husband and I engaged in having purebred Herefords. So we had a Hereford farm of about 100 head. And a horse, of course, because I needed a horse. I was haying. I did all that kind of thing because I grew up in the timber industry. I learned how to drive a truck. I can drive a semi. I could drive the loaders. I worked on the sawmill. My father wouldn't let us drive until we could change tires and change oil, so I learned how to do that when I was young as well. But that wasn't your full-time job when you were married with your husband, was it? No. When we got married, he was getting his master's degree. We were 10 years different. I married him right out of high school, and then he went into graduate school. 
And I started going to college, so that's what I started doing then. And then I had children, and then I went into human services. My education was in education, but I got to work in human services. I had a variety of responsibilities in human services. Then I also worked in an extended care facility as well. And I had taken a break from DHS and then worked in extended care facility as an activity coordinator, then went back into human services. And I have to tell you that that was most likely God's leading because I got back into the county services and subsequently, about four years later, my husband became very ill and he died in like four and a half months. It was probably a good thing. I had plenty of time I could take off. I had the whole time off. I had enough sick leave and all that kind of thing to be able to encompass that four and a half months. I didn't have to work during that time. So I had a good job and I had the good benefits and all that kind of thing that one needed when one becomes a widow. There's just one little piece in there I missed. He was in graduate school and became a farmer, raised Herefords, or maybe this is just a sideline. Yeah, that was our sideline. My husband, he was a chemist. Actually, he had a master's degree in chemistry, math, and physics. He was quite brilliant, and it certainly was not my idea of a good day. So he was very left brain. I was very right brain. But he grew up on a farm. He just always kept that tie to the farming. You know, he was a gardener, he was a fisherman, he was a hunter, and all that kind of thing. But then he went to UWS where he taught, and he taught chemistry. So I've got some idea. You're both professional people. You've got some children in the mix, and you're about 34, and your husband died. That must have been a pretty traumatic event. You're already working as kind of a caregiver through the Department of Human Services, through DHS. Could you heal yourself right away? No, no. By the grace of God, we had time, which doesn't always happen for people. We had time from diagnosis. I took him in to the hospital believing that he had pneumonia, and what they found was a massive tumor in his chest. And he never came home. He never came home from the hospital. He went from one hospital to the next hospital, and our life changed. Now, one of the benefits that I had that a lot of people don't have is I come from a medical family. My mother was a nurse. My older sister was a nurse. A lot of people think I'm a nurse. But because I was around a lot of that, I understood a lot of the processes. So I didn't. I was assertive and aggressive. <laughs> you know, I want to know the answer. I would protect my husband. Once they found, it took eight days, but they found this massive tumor, they only expected him to live six weeks. And he lived almost five months. But he never got to come home from the hospital. And so it changed our life immediately. I put him in the hospital on his birthday, October 2nd. He died a week after Valentine's Day. And in that time, we went through quite a journey together. And I learned so much from him. And we were very pragmatic. Our children were only nine and seven. So we had to be very pragmatic about what we were doing. We decided that our children would be told the truth immediately. Now, you have to remember, this is 25 years ago when it wasn't usual to allow children to be in the hospital. And my children got to see him at any time. I demanded that it was going to happen. And I had wonderful doctors who supported that. And as we were processing this, we went through a lot of experiences with other people who were of a spiritual nature as well, from some from my church, home church and, and the like, who had different agendas. And one of the things I discovered was that people wanted to pray people out of heaven. We talk about that we have this wonderful next life, and sometimes they were so anxious to say, well, he's got to be healed, he's got to be healed. And our belief, our concept, my husband's and mine, was that God would take care of whatever was going to happen on this journey. It was going to be, be according to the journey. 
what it was. Certainly my children and I did not want him to leave, thank you. I was 34 years old. I had two children, nine and seven. I didn't want him to leave, thank you. However, my husband shared with me his own struggle. And his struggle was, God, you know, I have two children. I want to see them grow. It took us seven years to get them. If you don't mind, we'd like to you know, be there. And he said that he got to the place where he just knew that whatever was to happen, and he really believed he was to leave, but he had some things he still had to do in that four and a half months, five months that was given. Six weeks was not enough time. And we had this opportunity to process together and to go through things that I had to learn as well about letting God do whatever was necessary to accomplish my husband's mission. I kept a journal during that period of time, and I had this image for a long time that we were on this airplane. I love to fly, I suppose that's why I thought of airplanes, that we were encircling the airport. And I believed that what was going to happen is that we were going to land, and he was going to get off the plane and go on a different plane. The night before he died, I was writing in my journal, and I said, I finally figured this one out. What I figured out was that the plane indeed was going to land, and we were on his journey, but his journey now was to complete on its own. We were the ones getting off the plane. The children and I were getting off the plane because our journey was a different flight and that he was going to complete the flight on his own and go into eternity. He had told me he had several dreams, several dreams that were quite profound. One of them was quite early. It was probably about six weeks into it, and he almost died. He was in surgery four times, and he almost died. And I said to him, I said, you almost died. You know? He said, no, I wasn't supposed to then. <laughs> I said, well, really? Because <laughs> I said, see, you're back here. We did have a sense of humor, the two of us. What he described was that he had been in this dream he was like on a on a high cliff with mountains we loved mountains and we traveled a lot and it was like a set of bleachers and i thought well that's interesting bleachers he loved he loved basketball so <laughs> i thought bleachers and mountains this is what follows and what he saw was that there was these people coming to take people on their journey and when they came to him he was told not yet your mission's not finished yet and it's because of him sharing with me these kinds of things, I really recognized that we come to this earth with only a prescribed number of days. That is a for sureism. That is a for sureism. And we have a mission, and we either will do it or we don't do it. But we have a mission to accomplish, and God will make sure that, that we have the time to do that mission in this allotted amount of days. Life's 
it's all about Why did the right road Take the wrong turn Why did our heart break Why did we get burned Just like the seasons There are reasons for the path we take There are My daughter's first child died at three weeks old. I was living in Phoenix at the time, and when I talked to her, she said to me, she says, one of the worst things that can happen to a child is a parent die, and one of the worst things that can happen to a parent is a child die. And she said, Mom, why did both happen to me? And at the time, my heart just 
you know, just clenched. And I thought to myself, what, what do I answer? And it was only by the grace of God and his wisdom that I said, there are no answers to the why questions. But what I do know for sure is this child in three weeks accomplished the mission that God had for him just as he did in the 45 years and four and a half months that your dad lived. That's what I know for sure. And that's what I truly believe. Now, has this been easy? No, it hasn't. I've watched a lot of deaths. 1980s were the worst. My mother died three years later. My father died four years after that. My best friend died six weeks after my husband died. And it seemed like there were a lot of deaths. I know my kids asked me once, are we only going to go to funerals for the rest of our life? You know, I mean, it was one of those things. But that decade taught me about living. That decade taught me about living as well. And it wasn't easy. I mean, I, I had health issues. I had... I was a single parent. I started a business. But it taught me. It taught me to live. It taught me to still have faith. Did I have bad days? God and I talk very, very straight up. (laughs) You know, God, whose plan is this? And I really would like plan B if you don't mind. And I don't believe God sits up in heaven, as some practices are, and says, well, let's see if I can throw this hurdle down on your path and see how you manage it. I think it's the path. And those paths have holes. You know, it's like these different roads that we take, and some of them are very rough climbing. But I finally get to the bridge. And when I get to that bridge, I have to say, I'm going to cross this bridge now. Have I learned something from What do I take with me? What do I leave behind? Most of what I have to leave behind is the hurt and take with me the joy that has come there because by that time I figured out there's some joy there. Transitions aren't easy for me. They really aren't. And I don't think they're easy for anybody. But I realize that when I get to that bridge, I learn I'm going to go across this bridge. It's a new path. It may be wide and I could take a lot of stuff with me, maybe very narrow. And I'm going to have to dump a whole bunch of stuff. But most of the stuff I have to dump is the pain and take with me what the lesson was. What did I learn? And I don't think God was up there saying, well, today I'm going to teach Marlene how to, bleh. you know, she needs to know. I don't think that's the way it is. I think it's, oh, Marlene, I'm with you on this path. You've chosen this path today. <laughs> you know, you really didn't like plan A, did you? Well, I'll walk with you on plan B. That's okay. That was your choice. But you will accomplish the mission that I have laid out for you. Because in my connection with God, I believe he has a mission for me. I believe that at this point, at this time, I am here to share that mission. I am here to tell the stories. I write them. I speak them, whatever they are, to give other people encouragement. Is my life any different than yours? Probably not. You've experienced many of the same kinds of conditions, death, despair, joy, whatever. It's just my story is different. The conditions of experiencing it and, you know, that kind of thing. If I can help somebody make a change or to not live in the wake of their life, to hang on to that story like Wayne Dyer talks about, you know, that people sometimes live in the wake. You know, you're in a boat and you keep looking behind. Oh, it's kind of nice, but people kind of hang on to that wake. They don't see where they're going. They don't see what's ahead. And you got to leave that wake behind because it's not productive. It leaves you not discovering what's, what's there. If I had sat in grief 
and said to myself at 34 years old, I'm going to raise my children. Isn't this terrible and awful? They don't have a dad. They don't have this. What am I going to do? What? I would never have experienced what I've experienced. I've gone around the world. I have done some very adventurous things. I would have never been there. You have a wonderful metaphor or parable of your own discovery of the change that you need to make. Can you tell us a bit about how you experienced that and what it means for your life? I will say that that was probably the most turning event in my life in passing through my grief. I had this wonderful bedroom, and I decided one day that I'm going to change it. Now, this was probably about nine months to a year after my husband had passed away. I'd finally cleaned out the closet. I did that after about six months, and, you know, it was some of these stages. And so I, I redid the bedroom. I put wallpaper on. And I thought, this is strange because I don't like wallpaper, but I did. And it had coral little flowers in it. And I got it all done, new carpeting, new furniture, the whole thing, kept our same bed. On the bed was a quilt that my mother had given to us, and it was a white quilt that had like these multicolored pinwheels of different fabric, and it was a very multicolored and everything. And I looked at the quilt, and I said, Bleh, this is not going to work. This does not match my new room. And I was rather attached to that quilt because my mother had given it to us and all. And I flipped up the corner of the quilt, and it was a solid color. And the color was coral, and it matched my ceiling. I had painted my ceiling coral. So I turned it over, and when I looked at this quilt, I realized I could see the stitching in the quilt. For the first time, I saw the pattern, because when you stitch a quilt together, you have these patterns. And I saw the pattern. And the metaphor that came to me was that this is just like my life. My life has turned over completely. I was a wife, now I'm a widow. I was a dual parent, now I'm a single parent. And all these kinds of things that changed. I'm the sole provider now, and et cetera, et cetera. But what held my life together was the same thing that held this quilt together. Two different sides. But what held it together was the stitching. And then I looked at that and I said, what's the stitching of my life? The stitching of my life was my faith. My connection to God. Everything else may have changed. But not my connection to God. That had stayed the same. It was this wonderful sense of, okay, Marlene, I'm here. I'm with you. You're not alone. That though my life turned over, I, in fact, was still the same person, and I was going to have to move on with the same faith that I had, the same connection that I had with God, and my life was going to be different. They've seen the wars that hurt the hunger. How will they choose when they are grown? What do you tell forever's children when it's their turn to hurt and heal? Whatever spins a grim tornado can also turn. 
Take a little clay, put it on a wheel, get a little hint how God must feel. Feel a little burn, listen to it spin, make it in the shape you want it in. Tell with your life the bloody story, teach to their dreams, not burning. Potter's wheel takes love and caring, skill and patience, fast and slow. The works it makes are easily broken. Once they survive, the potter's throw. Take a little play, put it on a wheel, get a little hint how God must feel. Give a little turn. Get in the shape you wanted it in. Someday some children will be digging in some long And they'll find our civilization Or what's left of it to be found They'll find the weapons of destruction But buried deeper in the hole They'll find a message and a promise In the sand of Potter's bowl thing my daughter said to me because she had lost her son and I was telling her about this because I was going to make a presentation about it and one of the things she said she said one of the things people have to remember too she said just because you turn over the quilt doesn't mean you lose the memories and I thought how interesting that was that she had that profound insight that on that other side of the quilt how many times did my husband and I lay on top of that quilt and talk about the kids talk about this that you know all the memories that one would have from that side of the quilt Our history was from on that other side of the quilt. And though I turned the quilt over, I was now going to make memories without him. But I didn't lose the memories of him. I didn't have to lose it or anything. Because sometimes people feel that if they move forward, then they have to leave the memory 
if you get stuck in the memory that you can't move forward, then you've got a problem. But it is not bad to have memories. But we can't be stuck there. I think that's the problem many times is people get stuck in that. I turned over my quilt. I have new memories on top of that quilt. I have new memories. I've moved on. Now I was saying, oh, my goodness, I can't move. Oh, no, I could never go overseas. Or, I oh, I can't do all this thing without. It's okay. And the memories are good. I don't think twice. So what would he think if I did this? I always think in terms of, oh, I bet he's wondering, well, Marlene's on another adventure. What is she doing now? And that it's okay. I don't have to live for him. I already lived with him. Now I've moved on. And he would expect that. And I think anybody that we have a strong attachment to with any kind of a loss expect to move forward. Expect to move forward. Some don't. I was at a presentation where I was talking about the turning of the quilt. And when I got done, I was about 500 people, so I, I couldn't remember all these people, you know. But this lady came up to me, and she slipped a piece of paper in my hand. And she said to me, today, she said, you have changed my life. I had to go to another gig, so I didn't have time to read it or anything like that. So I stuck it in my pocket. When I got to my other, other location, I had some time, and I stuck my hand in my pocket, and I pulled it out. On that piece of paper, she wrote to me that she had closed her room to her and her husband, who had died 13 years before. And she had only taken out of that room what she needed, and she had taken up residence in a guest room. And she hadn't been back in that room for 13 years. And she said, today, I'm going to turn my quilt. To me, that was very profound. She taught me, she taught me that it's never too late. Thirteen years later, she turned her quilt. She could find out that she could move forward. She didn't have to have her bedroom as a mausoleum. This is the day. It's whispering new beginnings. The sun shining over us as we journey on our way. These are our dreams that fill our lives with blessings. The angels are by our side till the breaking of the
as I listen to you talk about God and the Spirit in this whole process, I'm trying to identify what kind of religious background you have or how you identify religiously. It, it seems like a pastiche of different religious thoughts. It doesn't seem like it, it would fit with any one denomination that I know of. Boy, that's interesting you say that. One of my past spiritual mentors one time told me that there are two kinds of people in the church, the, the settlers and the pioneers. Because I used to say to him, I said, how come I don't fit? How come I don't fit? And I had been Sunday school superintendent and done all kinds of things, you know. But there was this thing in me, you know, that I always looked elsewhere, well, further out. And he said to me, he says, it's okay, Marlene, you're a pioneer, you're a pioneer. Boy, once I got that okay, huh, go for it, get on that wagon and move. My background comes from an evangelical background. In our local church in my community, I lived out in a rural community, was a Baptist church, Baptist General Conference. And I still maintain my membership up in Superior. And when I left my community, I was very connected to Native American spirituality. I grew up with a lot of Native Americans. They were employed by my father, and I got a lot of understanding. I I was very connected to nature because we lived out in a rural area. I still am connected to that. And I met a lot of people with diverse religious backgrounds. And the more I grew and more I traveled, you know, you travel a lot too, and when you meet people of different cultures and you find you can connect spiritually with them, I realized that God's presence was everywhere. That certainly a lot of the dogmatism that goes along with whatever, when we talk about fundamentalists or whatever, there's always a spectrum in every every faith. Today, we're we're somewhat scared, you know, you're saying, oh, if they're Muslim, they're going to be terrorists. Well, they're not. I know so many gracious Muslims that we sat together and prayed together for somebody who was ill. We worship the same God. And that's where I come from. I realized that God's essence is in everybody. God breathes his life into all of us. He sits inside of us. What we do with God in his presence is another matter. But that's the human choice, human condition. There is a Christian faith you've got fundamental to very liberal. Judaism, it's the same way. A Muslim, fundamental all the way to very liberal. I discovered that it's not doctrine. It's not the doctrine of somebody who sits way up in the echelons and says, it's this way, this way, this way. It's God. God is. I remember when I was young, I had this one teacher that kept telling me that the only way I could talk to God was doing this certain thing. And I really rebelled. I said, no, if God is here, I can talk to God right now, here, and I don't have to do a bunch of steps. That's where I'm at. And I look at everybody and say, how do you connect to God? What is your experience with God? That's what counts. And it's okay. I read the book, Five Stages of Faith. And boy, that really helped me because it took me away from being judgmental too. People do have to connect in different ways. Some people need more structure and some people don't. But it's God's way of connecting with them. And if that's how they connect with God, that's okay. If they need to have certain steps, that's okay. Because that's a very personal relationship. It's like my pastor said, there were some settlers. Settlers sometimes need the structure of the fort. And then there's some of us who feel confined. And our connection with God is out there on the prairie. Both people are fine. So you started out this Baptist General Conference, which is, I guess, different than Southern Baptists and American Baptists. It's somewhere in the middle, I think. You still have a membership, evidently, with that church. But what do you identify as now? I don't know if I do identify. What's always been interesting for me is that across the board, many fellowships have invited me to come and speak. 
I'm very comfortable in many of them. You know, I can go to Unity. I can go to a Lutheran church. I can go to a Catholic fellowship. I've been invited to Muslim fellowships. I had to kind of sit on the outside of it. I even had some Hindu experience as well. I subscribe to lots and lots of newsletters and stuff. And one of the things I do is I get on BeliefNet. And one day I took, you, you can do a BeliefNet IQ, a spiritual IQ kind of thing, you know, to find out where you identify the most with what faith. So I took the little test and I thought, well, this is kind of fun. I came out, my number one was Reformed Jew. I have several Jewish friends, and they call me a righteous Gentile, which means you believe in God of Israel. And I mentioned this to my friend. I said, do you believe this? I came out as a Reformed Jew. And he says, well, how nice of you. He says, now, where else did you come up? My faith of origin was down about the 12. And it, and it occurred to me later that when it comes down to it, I really connect to God. It really doesn't make any difference if I stand up and say I'm a Baptist or if I'm, you know, a, a Muslim, or whatever, what I am is God's child. That's what I am. And I know that God has been on this journey with me. And he's allowed me to yell at him. I've been angry as all get out, saying, what are you thinking? I remember telling my children once, uh, one of my children was very angry at God, because her dad was dying, of course. Then he was almost afraid to express it. And I said, it's okay. God can handle us being really ticked off. He understands we don't understand. <laughs> the only thing he wants is for us to keep looking at him. From my Baptist background, when we go through the acceptance of, of Jesus, the metaphor is always that we accept him into our heart. I've broadened that because my belief is, is that God breathed his life into me. He is in my heart already. You constantly refer to God as he, which I think is normal enough for most people. But in some ways, I have the feeling that you have a very non-traditional picture of God compared to what your Baptist upbringing gave you. What strands of your Baptist beliefs feel real strong and clear to you, and which ones have changed? I don't tell people I'm a Baptist. I'm not. And I suppose I would follow a more global Christian philosophy. If, if we're going to talk about that. When I look at what happens, like the transition into eternity, death, however people like to talk about it, I look at, I'm going to make a transition into eternity, and I get a chance to really behold God. Have I seen him before in some way, shape, or form? I suspect so. In the Mormon tradition, we are all spirits up in heaven, and that we get to come back, we are born into this world. So there is that understanding in Mormon tradition. I believe that too. I believe that God had me already. Do I believe in past lives and that kind of thing? Sometimes I think that that's a truism. Sometimes it baffles my mind. And when it comes right down to it, I have to live in the now. This is my life that I'm living now. I am not afraid to die. If I get another chance to come back down here again and do something better, I'll go for it. Some people who I know would say to me, Marlene, how could have you changed so much? I don't look at dogma, I guess, anymore. I don't look at that there was only one way to look at things. I think that the only thing I am sure of is God is. That's all I'm really sure of. God is. And with God being who he is, or she, or whatever, it makes no difference as far as I'm concerned, is that my responsibility is to live this life the very best that I can 
to live the principles as best as I understand them from my Baptist background, from my understanding from Mormon tradition, Native American traditions, whatever, to live a life that is pleasing to the Creator. Often when I write, I write Creator. I always feel that's a little more universal. It's not because I'm cutting God out or anything like that. I no longer believe I have to do certain things to connect to God. I don't have a problem with other people connecting to God the way they need to connect. What path do they have to take to get to God? Do they have to be born again? Some do. I love listening to Joel Olstein. I listen to this guy a lot. I happen to like this guy. Some feel that he's too social. I like a lot of stuff that he says. I like reading Wayne Dyer. There's a wonderful guy out there named Adam Casey. He's a coach for spiritual healers. He's great. And he comes from a Sufi background. That's where his tradition is now, Sufism. He's very spiritual, very connected to God. And when I meet people like this across the board, go past the doctrines, go past all these kinds of things that go on, I feel that presence of God with them. Harold Kushner, Rabbi Harold Kushner, wrote the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. But I read an afterword that he had written in one of his books. He wrote it after 9-11. And one of the profound things he said, because people were so scared, you know, oh, this terrible, we've had, and it was a terrible thing that happened to us. But he was talking about the development of faith, the development of different faiths. And he talked about Judaism getting to about 1,200 to 1,400 years. And he called it the adolescence. Well, there was a period of time when that faith kind of wanted everybody to be this faith. And they got kind of out of hand and there was massacres and all that kind of thing. Then he talked about Christianity. Christianity did about the same thing, 12 to 1400 years. And we had inquisitions and crusades and all that kind of thing because some men somewhere said, you know, we got to make everybody be in our faith. And then he said, you see it now with Muslim faith. They're in their adolescence too. And they're going through that part of their development. And I think that probably cemented for me the understanding that a lot of times what church, what, it becomes religion. And when religion gets a hierarchy, to me that becomes a political environment. It becomes politics almost. I'm saying that most everybody else was connected to God. They had to live regular lives. They weren't sitting in cloisters trying to figure out and what it was to be acceptable and what. Ordinary people like you and I were living their lives. And they had faith was their connection with God, just like you and me. Anybody who's listening to this, you're living regular lives. It's not your church hierarchy that's doing it. You're living a life, and you are connected to God, and however you're connected, that's real faith. That's the stitching of your life. That's really, that's, that holds my quilt together. That's what I know for sure. Marilyn, I think a lot of what you do, particularly with, with your storytelling and with the articles you write for the Dunn County News, I think a lot of what you do is help people forward in their growth, in their transitions, in their moving on. You talk about God and the Creator so much in what makes sense to you. Is it something that you think that they need in order to move forward? Do they need this spiritual basis to make their transitions? What I write and speak about is to get people to also be more open to difference. Because there isn't a lot of difference here, for the most part, we don't often have that kind of diversity. 
So when we look at differences, we sometimes are scared of them. I came here beginning to write columns about diversity. Because I had this wonderful experience of diversity, I've written a lot about that. To not shame people, but to open up to people that diversity, that tradition, that commonality of our human spirit. I tell the story about the Singaporean Malay who, during the war, was 12 years old. And when England left Singapore, left it open to the Japanese at that time who were coming across China and came down into Singapore. He lived on one of the outer islands. And he remembered waking up. He lived in a house of stilts and watching bodies come up. And they were Chinese bodies. There was a genocide during that war that nobody wanted to talk about, that we were so worried about what was going on, rightly so, what was going on in Germany and that kind of thing. These people, what they went through, that commonality of spirit. I mean, when I talked to this man and talked to him, a man of faith, he was Muslim. He was a man of faith, how God intervened for him. Their island was taken over by a Japanese lieutenant. How gracefully this man of leadership, who did not want to kill any Chinese, did not want to do that, figured out a way to have it so that the Chinese could live. And how this quiet Japanese lieutenant did this, this man of spirit as well. And my Malaysian friend, he had Chinese friends, of course. There were Chinese and Malay living on that little island. And how he befriended that Japanese lieutenant and how he recognized at 12 years old that even though he'd seen bodies of Chinese washed up, not one Chinese person was killed on that island because of a Japanese lieutenant who had the grace of God in him who despite of what all was going on, in that piece of the world, he saved Chinese lives. To me, we have to look at people as individuals. God created all of us, and he sits within our hearts. The essence is there. That's what I try to bring out in my columns and bring out in that, that there's the sameness from the creator. I don't care what religion you are. I really don't. What do you do with God? What is your faith? That's the difference. Religion, there's lots of people who practice religion. People who, who go to war over religion. That wasn't faith. That was religion. That was different. I'm just not quite sure how you see this issue. If someone's dealing with loss, with grief, maybe they're stuck, they haven't turned over their quilt yet, is there some spiritual resource they need to reach in and grab in order to make that transition, even if they think they're an atheist? I'm never sure that there's always really an atheist. I think we, we all cling on to something. We all hold to some kind of value, some kind of thing. When it comes to dealing with loss and grief, Eric Toll wrote this great book called Now, Living in the Now. I think across the board, we have to live in the now. The thing is, is that when you're dealing with grief... You're either living in the past and staying there, and that's when you're stuck. Or you take today, what is today, and what can I do today, and move forward. We have to cut our losses. And I think that's whether you have faith or not have faith, because I'm not here to tell people that they have to do something. Personally, in my own life, I think that I needed to have this faith because I so strongly believe in God. My husband was a scientist. I don't know how many times people have asked him, how can you be a scientist and believe in God? He says, it's exactly why I believe in God, because I am a scientist. And he grew up as a Baptist too. 
What he said was, I look at science and I see God in science. It didn't just happen. There is design to what happened. I think ultimately people find their way to some kind of faith. And for us to move on, it's not a living faith if we stay stuck. And usually, in my experience, I have found when I've done a lot of death and dying kind of things, is that people who stay stuck are usually angry and think it could have been changed. I mean, how many times do people lose somebody and then want to sue a doctor? <laughs> you know, it's your fault. You didn't do it. I don't think I'm answering your question when it comes down to it here. Because I don't know if I have a good answer. I think that ultimately people, if they're going to turn their quilt, that's an act of choice. That's a conscious choice. God doesn't sit there and say, you've got to turn that quilt over. This is your journey. What is your stitching? That's the question I ask you. What is it that's going to hold your life together? Is it faith? In my case, it's faith. In somebody else's case, it might be something else. It might be family. It might be whatever. What is it that holds your life together? But what gives you that courage to turn that quilt over and move on? And one of the things I want to be really heard about, it isn't just death that we suffer loss from. When I do my presentations, I say, I don't know what kind of loss you've had. Could it be a loss of a relationship? Could it be a loss of a child? Could it be a loss of a job? Do you stay stuck? Can you turn the quilt over? You do a lot of speaking with your Adventures in Living program. You also do a fair amount of writing. Besides the opinion column that you write for the Dunn County News, you're in the process of three different books, I think, right at the moment that you're co-writing or writing yourself. Can you tell me a little about what those are and how you come about to those? And how do those speak of what you're trying to convey to people? I've written a lot of columns, and out of that, there's been a couple themes. One of the themes is discovering meaning after loss. So I'm putting a compilation of those together, coming up with some new material as well. So that's one of the books. The other one is on some of the caregiving. I'm pulling that together because I'd written a lot about caregiving experiences. And I'm calling that one the raccoon and the storyteller coming out of my Native American background. The raccoon is considered the generous protector. And I equate that to the caregiver. And the storyteller, I equate to the person who is being cared for. Because in my experience, the people we care for, they aren't just a patient. They are our teachers. They are our storytellers. It says in Native American tradition that the storyteller is the holder of expansion. So that's the second book, and I'm pretty far along with that one. And the third one I'm doing, I'm co-authoring with a gentleman from Australia. His name is John Ahern. He has done a lot of motivational speaking and a very spiritual person. And he's had this bee in his bonnet for quite some time about writing a book about 40 and beyond. He and I both share this passion of that you can't get stuck. Well, apparently in Australian culture, 40 is kind of, 40 is like our 50, you know, and when we turn 50, we kind of say, oh, what more is there? Our half of our life is over and, you know, all this kind of thing. And some people just kind of get stuck. Well, apparently it's at the age of 40 in Australia and John has just turned 40 and I'm about to turn 60. And so we're co-authoring this book, 40 and Beyond, looking at what people have accomplished after 40, the different stages of our lives and people that we've come across and that we're soliciting for and some of these experiences. And we are hoping to have it out by the fall. We'll be putting up a website about 40 and Beyond as well. 
So you got a lot of work ahead of you. You've got your speaking engagements. You've got books to be working on, to be finishing up, getting out here. You write your column regularly for the Dunn County News. You've got your posters that you produce, your beautiful photography combined with inspirational statements. You've got all of that. Do you sleep at all? I do. I really do. But I do wake up very early. And I can't do everything at the same time, so some stuff gets put on hold and it all comes out in, in the right time. But I look at each day as an adventure in living, and I've said this for a long time. I'm about to turn 60. I learned how to mountain bike. Well, I learned how to bike, and I fall down a lot when I try to mountain bike. But every day I keep looking for new experiences. There's one strand of the discussion about your religious faith, your background, that I wanted to ask you about. Because it seems to me that you have a whole boiler full of spiritual steam to keep you moving and going places. One of the things for me as a Quaker that I identify as real important in helping me keep going forward is having a strong community, community of faith, as it works for me. But I'm assuming that somehow there's some kind of a grounded spiritual community that you're a part of, even if you're not part of a religious faith, that upholds you and moves you forward. I think I do have a strong spiritual community, but I, I don't think it's very traditional. Probably it's not traditional because when I left Wisconsin 14, 15 years ago and returned about four years ago, whatever, I tend to be a connector. I'm a networker. I have a strong spiritual community of a lot of people, but they're not necessarily local people. And I have lived in numerous places, and I have had numerous experiences, but I've always connected to spiritual people. When I think that I need a spiritual mentor, it may be somebody I connect with that's overseas. It may be somebody that I connect with someplace here in the States. My spiritual community... I think is very broad because for the most part I kept connected. For one thing, I was traveling all the time. I was moving all the time. So I learned that my spiritual community wasn't necessarily a cinder block place to be. I discovered for myself that my community was worldwide. So it's true I'm not a member of a fellowship but I go to your services as, as to anybody else's and find God there. I think our hour's about up here, Marlene. One last thing I wanted to mention. You do this speaking. How do people get a hold of you if they want you to talk about your quilts and your adventures in living and this kind of thing? Well, how you can get a hold of me is write me an email at marlene at adventuresinlivingsite.com. I think you better spell out Marlene for them because most people don't know how you spell Marlene. Yes, my mother did not know how to spell. So this is how you spell Marlene. It's M-A-R-A-L-E-N-E. At Adventures in Living Site, that's S-I-T-E dot com. And shortly we will have a website up so that you'll be able to connect through there. And I also produce a newsletter, and if you would like to get the newsletter, just let me know through that email. And once I get the website up, you'll be able to sign up for the newsletter there. I put out an Adventures in Living journal and connect with lots of people and try to give you really good information and some good inspiration as well. And that site will be adventuresinlivingsite.com, right? Right, adventuresinlivingsite.com. Thanks for joining me. 
sharing your adventures. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity and to share with you today. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to a visit with writer, speaker, adventurer Marlene Strum. You can listen to this program and others via my website, northernspiritradio.org, where you will also find additional information and links. Music featured on this program has included Lessons to be Learned by Barbara Streisand, Potter's Wheel by John Denver, This is the Day, subtitled Barry's Bar Mitzvah Song by Debbie Friedman. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher call for you than this To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness 